Blog Talk Radio. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as tired as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Tell you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Cancer Show. That's hot. Hello there, children. People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Zachary. Alrighty, Monday, July 5th, and welcome back to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adults with cancer. Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Well, get busy living because the Stupid Cancer Show is here to change the world one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show, a very special episode of Different Strokes. Not the one with the porn guy in the, uh, the toy store. But the bereaved spouse is a very, very serious topic in our angel spotlight. Jennifer Owen, Carissa Hamilton, Gribbonas. I'm pronouncing that wrong and I apologize. And Julie Larson, returning champion. Um the Young Adult Services Program Coordinator uh, at Cancer Care here in New York City. Uh, as a reminder, this broadcast is a program of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation, who would like to thank our major sponsors for making this show possible online at i2y.com. We help young adults fight cancer every day and are bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight where it belongs because our generation deserves better. So hello, my friends, and welcome to yet another fun-filled and exciting romp through the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show, where remission is not a cure, and survivorship is really all that matters. And a Stupid Cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network, broadcasting live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. I'm Matthew Zachary, a 14-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. And as always, please welcome my official partner in crime here on the Stupid Cancer Show, hailing from right here in New York City, 15-year young adult breast cancer survivor, acclaimed journalist, former deputy editor of TV Guide, and former entertainment news correspondent for the Fox News Channel, the lovely and talented Lisa Bernhard. Hello, Lisa. Feeling very patriotic. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm all about the red, white, and blue. Yes, oh, happy 234th birthday to the United States of America. You know, I know we like to, I was going to say, I thought you were wishing, wishing me a happy 234th birthday. I was going to say, I know we like to make fun of my age, but that's really pushing it. But um, to the U.S. of A. Well, were you, were you written on papyrus? <laughs> I like to go to that, that stationery store, papyrus. That is a good stationery store. Yeah, it's a very nice one. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I've never heard of it. What is it? <laughs> <laughs> Papyrus. 
Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, I'm uh, well and happy to be talking to you. And uh, very important show we have tonight. And we're uh, happy to. I'm, I'm really interested to get going with our guests. No, it's going to be a good show. Um, I un- unfortunately have to introduce our chief cancer anarchist and vice president oh, yeah. of grassroots programming, Jack Poufard. Hello, Hi, guys. Jack. How are you? I'm hey, fine, thank you. Happy what? birthday, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. So what, what Dave Matthews or Bare Naked Ladies or U2 concert have you been to recently? I haven't, but I'm going to see DMB next Tuesday. Okay. Does that count? You have to get your fix in somehow. That's true. Did Bono's, did Bono's uh, back surgery uh, come and go, and are they back on tour now? Fill us in. They are going to be back next month, uh, starting in Milan, Italy. When unfortunately, I am not going to that show as of yet. As but of yet, I'll certainly keep you posted if I end up there. Because we'll be on hiatus, so I can go. That is true. But we're moving in August, so you can't. Well, I'm going to First Ascent next month. That's true. That is true. So I'm going to be in Vale from uh, August 8th to the 14th. So if anybody out there is going, your boy Radio will be paddling next to you on the river. Uh, what? That's my nickname. My first ascent nickname. I'm is aware radio. of that. I'm aware of that. Anyway, Jack, um, we'll be monitoring our live interactive concurrent chat room. If you have any questions for our guests, please shoot them his way. We'll do our best to get them answered. Um, our broadcast production assistant Amanda Freeman could not be here tonight. She's finishing up her finals, which is uh, good that she's prioritizing work. Boring. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, but she she's a lot smarter than me. So we have yeah. a very special um, in studio guest us. tonight, Stephanie uh, Swirsky. Uh, comes to us from the world of young adult um, chronic heart disease, interestingly enough. Uh, her boyfriend passed away uh, from, uh, was it congenital heart disease? Yeah. yeah. Well, welcome to the show. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're calling her one of our groupies. Um, obviously, she has not been affected by cancer, thankfully, but it goes back to this idea that all young adult diseases suck and that regardless of what's wrong with you, if you're in your teens, 20s, and 30s, you are kind of screwed and kind of left out. And um, she was doing research for, she's a playwright, you're a playwright? Yes. And what are you working on? Um, I'm working on a few things. Um, I worked, I wrote a play actually about my boyfriend dying. <laughs> and, um, and I came across this organization because I was doing research for a play um, about a young woman with inflammatory breast cancer. And so when I was gathering my research, I came across uh, this radio show and I started listening and kept listening. <laughs> And 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 she wait. And so you listened once, and then you listened a second time. Shocking. I know. She she's on the payroll. <laughs> she must be. She's actually Matt's say. cousin. <laughs> how, do, yeah, how do we get a repeat customer? Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but again, tonight's show is very relevant because again, even though she wasn't affected by cancer and her boyfriend didn't pass away from cancer, it's this notion of bereavement when you're in your twenties and thirties that there is a tremendously relevant common thread uh, that that's woven. Uh, within our generation. So welcome. Thank you for coming to the show. Thanks. Okay. Oh, we and, hope you and, do come back. And yay, and, and, and yay playwrights, as Aaron Eloise Tolberg in, the pla- in our chat yes, room. Yes, we like written. playwrights. Playwrights are awesome. How do, how do I know that name? Sorry. Hmm. Aaron Eloise Tolberg is the latest Kool-Aid drinking member of the I'm Too Young for This Cancer Foundation family. She is a young adult breast cancer survivor, I do not know if she had inflammatory breast cancer or nor what stage she was diagnosed at. But Erin uh, flew halfway across the world from uh, Seattle to New York City to attend the OMG Cancer Summit, our annual international conference at the end of May, and um, met someone that we work with at the organization named Kenny. They hit it off, and we're very happy for them. And uh, she's going to be moving to New York, we hope, soon to become another slave 
like Jack and uh, wraps things up with uh, rubber bands and you know bundle stuff and sends stuff out to hospitals. But and I'm not sharing. We, and whether I was going to say, and whether we like it or not, we just completely <clears throat> outed their relationship to our uh, radio community. So we hope that they're uh, that they're all for that. And she's actually a Kenny groupie. She's not a Jack groupie. Okay, that's fantastic. No, like. <laughs> I don't think there's anything that this show could do to out them any more than they've been doing on Facebook. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. It comes up on my feed. Every other line in my feed is the two of them cooing at each other, which is quite adorable, but you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that you could make the little heart symbol as a status <laughs> character. It's, a, it's a, a less than sign in a three. And I only know that because Lisa was leaving them all over my page. Oh, fantastic. Oh. But listen, wow. I'm so glad you didn't say it was me because I was really on her profile. I was I was logged into Lisa's account. <laughs> yeah. I can't. I can't. I just can't help myself. Wait, wait. Are you saying that people actually see someone's Facebook page open and then they log it and then they go on it and start making changes? Yeah, I think that's got to be one of the greatest liabilities of our day is walking away from a live, active, logged-in Facebook page and coming back like an hour later. Yeah. Only, only to have Jack change your profile picture. <laughs> right. I've been kind to you. You have. Well, you know that I, I'm much more important than you, so you, you can't really do anything that will damage me because it will disengender uh, your working for us. But I did notice the other day and that... Threat, not yes. even veiled. Not even veiled. I noticed it's right after that all 130,000 people have listened to this show, yes. I did notice the other day that my phone had a bazillion Facebook notifications that people were commenting on my new profile picture. So I was curious, and I logged in and saw that the world's ugliest dog was residing in my profile. Yeah, but that was there before I messed with it. That's not funny. No, it isn't funny. It's even stranger that you would choose that to be your profile picture for me to mess up. And, 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 and my uh, status said something about how much I love our intern. Yes. So then I knew it was a lie. <laughs> Scotty couldn't be here tonight either. Sarah Kottenoff is our fabulous intern. Uh, for the summer, and we call her Scotty, affectionately. Or something. Yeah. Or something. Or, or something. something. So, um, anyway, my my kids turned nine nine weeks old. Nine, nine weeks old. I keep saying nine months. Like, like no, they're nine weeks old. When are we going to have them on the show? It just feels like it's been nine months. Well, my, um, my uh, what do you call it? Uh, my, my son doesn't make any noise, so he wouldn't be a good guest. My daughter um, makes tons of noise. so she, Most remember. women do. Oh, she's a Jewish-American princess. <laughs> But in any case, let, let's let's get down to brass tacks here. Let's talk to our first guest tonight, um, and uh, <clears throat> let's see how this all works itself out. All right, you are listening to the Stupid Cancer Show. It is nine ten. All right, I don't have a, I don't have a bio for her, but I'm going to make this up, which I I used to do for Johnny Emerman all the time. I said he was a goat herder and he made cheese in Norway and. Or wooden clogs and whatever. Those are our favorite kinds of guests. Jennifer Owen is a practicing attorney from Washington, D.C. Uh, earlier this year, her husband, Kurt, passed away from esophageal cancer at the age of 31. 31. Uh, she has uh, been a fan of, and Kurt was a fan of, our organization for quite a while. And um, very sad to have her here tonight to discuss this, but also extremely important. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, live in studio, Jennifer Owen. Thank you. I'm not sad that you're in studio with us. No, I'm not sad that you're in studio. I'm sad that the reason that you're here is unfortunate, but you're choosing to do something fantastic 
with the opportunity. Well, you're giving me a chance to talk about my husband. It's my absolute favorite thing to talk about, so the pleasure is mine. As long as you don't talk about oh. Jack. If I was someone's husband, that's all they would talk about, too. That's so wrong. Only on the other, on the other no, side. No, no comment. <laughs> no comment at all. At all. So, Jennifer, Jennifer tell, us, tell, tell us about Kurt. Um, I'm glad to. Kurt was, is my high school sweetheart. We met when we were 16. Um, he has been the love of my life since the moment I laid eyes on him. And um, he, is, he is one of those people that I think genuinely there was no one who met him that didn't like him. He was um, instantly your friend as soon as you met him. After 10 minutes, you walked away thinking what a great person he was. And um, the world, to me, no longer seems right without him here. He was such a big presence for those of us who knew him and loved him. And I think about the... 130,000 people listening to this show who don't know him, and I'm sorry for them because it's their loss. He um, he was one of the smartest people I knew, funny, charming, a brilliant engineer, and the center of my world. Wow, and so you guys met when you were 16. We did. He was my first kiss, as a matter of fact. Amazing. And when, and when did you get married? We got married in 2001. Huh. And he was... Um, we, we we moved to Washington D.C., built a life here, and uh, in September 2008, he was diagnosed with cancer. September 2008. Wow, esophageal cancer. Esophageal so, cancer, a very strange cancer for a young person to have. The average age of diagnosis is 62, and wow. so everything about him was an outlier. Wow. And again, what any kinds of symptoms? What happened? Tell, walk us through the sort of early stages of what he was feeling and what happened when he first went to doctors. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't the sort of um, traditional story. We, uh, he had no real symptoms, no family history of cancer, nothing that would have sort of flagged this to our attention. In, um, in May 2008, I finished law school, and um, in August 2008, we were sort of finally getting our lives back after me being in school for um, four years, and we were doing some home renovation, as a matter of fact, some drywall, and he sneezed. And when he sneezed, it dropped him to his knees. He had this pain in his side that was the kind of pain you would think of for appendicitis or kidney stones or gallstones. But it was pretty intense. And over the course of the evening, he started to develop a fever. So eventually we went to the emergency room thinking that he had some sort of emergency condition. Um, In the emergency room, they did an ultrasound. and didn't see anything like kidney stones or gallstones. uh, But the ultrasound almost accidentally saw some spots on his liver. So they sent us home, and they said, you know, there's, there's no sort of emergency condition here, but you ought to get those spots on your liver checked in the next couple of days. We went in, um, saw a gastroenterologist, went in for a CAT scan, and they tested and tested and tested until they could tell us for certain three weeks later that he had cancer. Now, this yeah. is it's already matched. It already metastasized to his right. liver. That's right. Yeah, it had, it had spread to his lymph nodes and liver, and so he was terminal when diagnosed. So did they know, and at what point, did they, were they, at that point, did you know that it was the esophageal, or that's where it had originated? No. The day that they told him he had cancer, they, um, they said they had found tumors in, at the base of his esophagus, lymph nodes, and liver, but were sending it off for um, testing and staging. We, um, he was told he had cancer on September 4th, and on September 8th, he was told stage 4 esophageal cancer. Wow. I guess the question has to be asked, non-smoker. Non-smoker. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure people are like, non-smoker, non-smoker, non-smoker. 
I can't see her with your giant melon in front of me, Jack. <laughs> Julie, can you? Oh, that's my melon tar. We, I mean, we went through, you know, he's a farm kid. He grew up on, in a farm um, in, kind of in north-central Montana. The doctors went through every chemical they used on the farm trying to find something, and there was right. just nothing. Right. So it's one yeah. of those, like, we, we have no idea why this happens. That's right. It just happens, and that's the way it is. Yeah, and it sucks. Yes, it does. But it goes back to the larger picture of that young adults get cancer for different reasons than older people get cancer. We don't know what those reasons are, and the people who think they might know what those reasons are, like environmentalists and environmental ecologists, are met every step of the way with opposition because the I'm convinced that I'm not a conspiracy theorist like crazy person, but you would think that companies like and I I'll just say them because I don't think they'll ever be sponsors, but I see Johnson Wax, you know, would not want people to know that like Carpet Fresh causes cancer if you breathe it in when you're a kid and you get esophageal cancer when you're 20. There, I said it, S.C. Johnson Wax. But yeah. this is also an example as to how the research out there doesn't benefit our generation because right. there's no way to screen for this. Yes. That's right. So, Jennifer, talk about then your relationship together with Kurt. He gets this diagnosis. You're, you're a couple. You're somewhat, you know, still newlyweds. You're young. Now you've got, he, he lived for about two years. Is, is that right? I mean, how was it for him, for you, for the two of you as a married couple? What did you kind of face, and how did you deal with this together emotionally? What was life like for you then? Well, I mean, obviously, a diagnosis like that turns your whole world on its ear. We had, like I said, we had just gotten through this horribly intense four years of me being in law school, and now we had this other enormous battle on our hands just when we were starting to prepare for things like having kids and having a normal life and and sort of growing up and being adults together. And all of a sudden, there was this enormous, unfair, unpredictable obstacle in front of us. When we met with the very first oncologist who did not become our treating oncologist for a variety of reasons, um, they told him that it was terminal. Um, they sort of said, you know, maybe two years, um, but they, they didn't expect him to live long. And he walked out of the room and looked at me and said, they don't know. Only God knows. And the fight was on. The fight was on from that minute. Kurt took on his battle with cancer on all fronts. It was chemo. It was research. It was eating better. It was spirituality and faith. I mean, every tool he could bring to bear to fight this disease, he did and we did. I mean, we had because we had grown up together and become adults together, we were a team. We made decisions together. We were partners, and we faced this together. I you know, there were some steps that I couldn't take for him. I couldn't, couldn't take the chemo for him. I couldn't be in his shoes. But um, as close as I could possibly be to the fight, I was. And the great part of the story is Kurt battled cancer for 15 months, and 14 of those months were a pretty normal life. He was right? an absolute fierce fighter, and he, um, he wasn't going to let cancer stop him from living, and so he did. He, you know, was, we were getting chemo. He was getting chemo once a week, and he worked probably 80% of the time. What did he do? He's an engineer. He um, does uh, military and intelligence engineering devices. Um, very sort of... That's my old job. Yeah, I'm sure. Minus <laughs> <laughs> the intelligence. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, very sort of secretive, intense, special work that saved a lot of lives and something he was tremendously proud of, and he didn't really miss a beat. He continued to sail, as he always had. We traveled. I mean, we lived, even though... He was dragging a chemo pump around with him a lot of the time, and it really wasn't until the last month of his life that everything unraveled, and it unraveled so terribly quickly. Wow. So talk to us again about what, what 
talk to us now about what life has been like for you post. I mean, who you find yourself, you know, in this small, you know, albeit very powerful and you know, group of, of, of young people who are left without a spouse. And where do you turn? Where did you go? How did you um, cope for yourself after that? It's it's the most devastating, earth-shattering experience that I can imagine. Um, for me, Kurt was was not just the center of my world, but the context through which life was viewed. We made decisions together about our life and our dreams and our hopes, and now I'm lacking the other part of the hour there to give dreams and goals and decisions purpose. And so a lot of it, quite honestly, has been sort of fumbling around trying to understand what this world means without him here. I do at times feel almost like a sociologist or an anthropologist studying a species that I no longer recognize. I just, I, I, I struggle to sort of identify with tourists that I see walking to, down to the Washington Monument to take their pictures when I think, don't they know what has happened? Don't they know what a loss there is? And so it, it, is, it is a fumbling process to try to understand what each day means. There have been things that have worked. Uh, I started seeing a, a counselor very shortly after um, after Kurt's memorial service, and I'm glad I did that because for the longest time I wasn't prepared to process through any emotions, but here I had a total stranger who I got to tell Kurt's stories to, and that in and of itself was incredibly therapeutic. For me yes. and for Kurt as yes. well, faith was a huge part of this as well, and so I've I've found that, that spirituality helps me to answer some of those eternal questions and give me a sense that Kurt is somewhere where he has defeated cancer eternally and is safe and whole and restored and just waiting for me. Wow, wow. I mean, you sound, you sound amazingly together. I mean, you really, I mean, obviously you're very smart. You've got a great career. Um, and uh, is it just, was it easier then for you to go and talk to somebody like a counselor, um, look to, you know, your faith rather than talking to close loved ones? Did you need that sort of, somebody who had that emotional detachment, was that a better and kind of more effective way for you to heal? No, it was a part of the whole process because I had yeah. the friends too. Um, I, okay. I, I was very fortunate to have a work environment that was very loving and supporting, and it allowed me to sort of just be whatever I was at the moment. So if I needed to sit at my desk and cry, I could do that. And if I needed to go home, I could do that. And if I needed to work and not think about it, I could do that. And so it is, it is as I characterize it, such a fumbling process that when someone said, oh, you should go see a therapist, I just sort of went, not really knowing why I was doing it. But I, I was so lost and so disoriented that I just um, I had, had been fortunate to have people who pointed me in the direction of, of ways to solve some of what this awfulness is. So it was a bit of everything that kind of helped you get through it. Did you also, did you meet any other um, young adults who had lost spouses as well or no? I have not. Yeah, that's a, but that's uh, the whole point here. Is like yeah. there's such a fragmented world within the young adult community, which in and of itself is a fragmented world within the cancer community. Who is going to be responsible to put someone like Jennifer in touch with someone like Jennifer when they want to find somebody like Jennifer to talk to, and that no one is really doing that right now. And as far as this notion of real meaningful peer support, it's a huge gap in the relationship management of support in the young adult community. 
I mean, I, I in my head, I know like six people I can give you the email address tomorrow, but I can't be Matapedia. That, that's just not my job and <laughs> my role in life to do that. Try to Can we just, is that website available? Someone check Matapedia.com. Get, get that URL right now. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, to be honest, it's tricky, too. I mean, there are days that I desperately want to connect with someone who's walking this path with me, and other days when I'm convinced no one loved their husband like I loved him. Yes. And so no one can possibly understand what this is like. So it is, it's a tricky process, the idea of connecting. There are days that I've thought about just roaming the halls of Johns Hopkins to see if there's anyone around, and there are other days where I think it's impossible for me to find the words to express what this loss means. How did Kurt find I2Y? Uh, I always like to know how these things start. Yeah, honestly, it was an Internet search. We were looking for resources and, and through links and links and links stumbled upon it. And as soon as we did, sort of found the right voice. You know, the, the cancer diagnosis throws you for such a loop. And here was someone saying, this sucks, and it's not fair, and it's not right. And we were like, yes, somebody gets it. Somebody gets that young adult cancer is different, that Kurt's treatment path will be different because he's young and strong and can take it that the decisions we make are different, that it's just strange to process esophageal cancer at 30 and not 60. It was, it was for us, almost a catharsis to find it and find a voice. There you go. Well, we're going to cut to do a bit of a news segment right now. We'll get back. We'll Actually, have... Matt, can I ask you a quick question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you feel about the word widow, it like makes, as a younger person? It makes me want to punch a kitten. Yeah. I mean, it's just the worst. It makes me wow. want to wow. violent. Stay out of my house. <laughs> it is, but, it's but, the worst. It is, it is, it's not right. It's not accurate. It is almost a, a condemnation, not, a, not a, a label. And the label part is tricky. I mean, I was Kurt's wife, and nothing made me prouder. And now I don't know what to be. But it's not widow. Right. Because we had uh, someone who was in their mid-30s who lost his wife, and it was the same thing. Like he hated the word widower and was like, "I'm 36 years old. I'm not. I'm not an effing widower. Yeah, you know, no, like I am, but I'm not. You know, because yeah. it's yeah. it's a word that we think of. You know, it's it's like the same thing with cancer. It's like we think of old people. You know, a widow is someone that's you know, stitching and bitching. You and know, there's a certain element of noble tragedy to it that doesn't fit either. I'm not. I'm not sort of. Um, just bearing this loss, I'm I'm out talking about Kurt and telling people about him, and the concept of being a widow just doesn't fit. And just to add, I mean, I notice very much in your language, you very often talk about him in the present tense, you know, which I imagine you will continue to do for for some time. I mean, as and and he obviously is still with you in in many many ways. And there are times that I do it intentionally, and sometimes it's accidental, but. When I say things like he's the center of my universe and the love of my life, that is eternal. That is timeless, and um, the present tense makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think widow and caregiver are two words that are hard for people our age to accept and comprehend. Like co-survivor is another one that people throw out there. Yeah, like like our our friend Megan Rogers, who lost her fiance um, last year, uses the term cancer co-pilot because caregiver was was an older person. Yeah. Like, I'm not a caregiver, I'm a co-pilot. So it's the same thing with widow. You know, it's, it's words that, that it's right. don't belong in our no. generation. Sure. Knitting and bitching. What would you call it, Jack? Stitch and bitch. Stitch you know, it's like bitch. all the old ladies that sit around right. stitching and bitching. Makes her want to punch a kitten. That, is, that says it right there. 
I like that. I like it. We like it. You can say. You can had had we known you, you were going to say that, we would have queued up a sound effect of like a cat being thrown off the Empire State Building. I'm not sure. Maybe maybe Jennifer can inspire the ne- the next um, wave of wristbands. Not the middle finger, but an actual fist going in a kitten's face. Nice. I don't know. Maybe that's too much. Punchakitten.com. There I you go. We'll, I think we'll get PETA after us. <laughs> PETA. Fantastic. People eating tasty animals. Nice. Is that what PETA stands for? Yes, in Jack's world. <laughs> Anyway, do we have some news? Uh, we uh, probably we have, have some news. news. We actually do have yeah. some news. Jack has something important to announce. I don't know what it is. Really? I'm yeah. leaving. No. Yeah. No, I, I, I read the story today that olive oil now prevents breast cancer. Oh, I saw that too. Really? Yeah. Is, is Popeye behind that? Yeah, right. Oh, wrong olive oil. Sorry. Wrong olive oil. Yeah. yeah gotta love that. Gotta uh, love maybe, that. Maybe, maybe balsamic does too. A little so, like, that makes the food that. channel. So, wait, hold on a second. If KFC uses olive oil to cook that ghastly, god-awful chicken, I then it. I just might get behind the buckets for the cure campaign. I think they just use lard. That's true. Anyway, you got some news for us, Jack? I do. Uh, um, all right, I guess, uh, I guess he deserves, it up. He deserves the, uh, the, Hello, he, I'm the segment. Hello, I'm Ken Brockman, and this is I I'll throw I'm him a bone. Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. I feel like we haven't done this in, like, months. Done what? We haven't. During this part of the stupid cancer show, we listen to Jack Lafarge stammer through a series of special announcements to let our listeners know about a whole bunch of stuff you might otherwise never find out about. And we don't want you missing out on free young adult stuff like conferences, happy hours, retreats, scholarships, support groups, music concerts, and more. If you have something coming up that you would like our audience to know about, please send an email to Jack Lafarge at Jack at i2y.com. That's Jack at i2y.com. Thanks, buddy. Good to be back in the news. First up, you want to head on over to events.i2y.com. Events.i2y.com is your one-stop shop for all stupid cancer events happening nationwide. Stay in the loop because something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we don't want you missing out on it, especially if I'm not going to be there. We just updated the calendar and added Cancer Palooza Los Angeles for Sunday, August 1st. So everyone in the L.A. area, head on over to events.i2y.com. Sunday, August 1st in Los Angeles, it's Cancer Palooza. Being that I lack both the time and the intelligence to share with you all the great stuff we have going on for the young adult cancer world, I've created the Boof News blog. Everyone needs to check out boofnews.i2y.com. That's B-O-O-F dot I-2-Y dot com for the official list of all stupid cancer news resources. These include surveys, exercise programs, writing workshops, peer services, and fertility resources. And we have a great new support system in place from our friends at the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. Our partners. Our partners and friends. They're our friends. You can be both. That's true. Like, you and I are just partners. We're not friends. No, not at all. And, well, partners these days can be very misleading. Oh, God. But you're married, so hopefully people will believe that. But anyway, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society is proud to present their YA Connect, Straight Talk for Young Adults Facing Cancer. It is a program for young adults aged 18 to 39 who are facing cancer. These programs include weekly online chats and periodic interactive webcasts. Learn more about these programs and how to register by visiting LLS.org, and you can type YA Connect in the search box. I will add one thing to this, and this is really important. Yes. The Leukemia Lymphoma Society is typically only about blood cancers, 
but in working with us and helping them to formulate this particular program, it is for any young adult with any cancer. Don't let the name fool you just because it's Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Any young adult with any cancer is welcome to go on the YA Connect program every Tuesday. It's fantastic. It's every Tuesday from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. It's open dialogue and support for young adults tackling the serious and sometimes absurd sides of cancer. So again, head on over to LLS.org slash YA Connect. And that, my friends, is all I got. Back to you, Matt. Well, uh, tonight's show is all about uh, bereavement. Again, it's a really serious show. I want to introduce our two guests. Jennifer's in the studio tonight, so she'll be chiming in. Uh, we're going to have a really great roundtable discussion about how this affects uh, the young adult community, what coping mechanisms people can use, and how we're kind of, we're kind of all bonding together to, to, to make us think about how we matter and we deserve better from the, uh, from the establishment. So without further ado, I shall be announcing our two guests tonight. Alrighty, in studio with us live, program director for the Young Adult Program at Cancer Care here in New York City, a national organization which provides free professional support services including counseling, education, financial assistance, and practical help to help young adults affected by cancer get on with their lives and deal with their craftness. She is one of the leading national gurus in young adult cancer support, advocacy, and counseling. She's a pretty fine singer, too. And a brand new mom, like my wife. Please welcome to the show, Julie Larson. Thank you, Matt. And I'm going to totally mess up her last name, but hopefully she'll forgive me. Carissa Hamilton Grabenis. <laughs> She's going to kill me. Is the founder of Bricks, B-R-I-C-K-S, Bricks for Young Adults, a Pittsburgh-based organization that connects young adults with resources that may be useful to them during their cancer experience and beyond. Very needed. From treatment to survivorship to death, BRICS covers a lot of ground in its recently published Cancer Awareness and Resource Guide, which I have, and it's fantastic. She founded BRICS for young adults after losing her 31-year-old husband to Hodgkin's lymphoma last year. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Julie Larson and Carissa hamilton Grabenis. Please correct me, I feel like an idiot. Carissa, how do you pronounce your last name? Hamilton Grabenis. Very I said it. I said it right the second time, almost. Yeah. <laughs> Grabenis. Thank you yep. very much. Because I hate to. I, you, I don't know how many Jews you know, but in Yiddish, your last name means chicken fat. Okay. I had you. no idea. I'm sorry. I just. Matthew made that up. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. No. Grabenis. Grabenis is when you take the chi- or, or chicken or turkey after Thanksgiving or after you cook turkey and take the fat. And you let it congeal in the kitchen, and then you spread it on toast the next day. That's it's, that's my favorite part of Thanksgiving. It is disgusting, but every every grandma Jew in the entire country that came over on a boat from Poland does that. We're just a fountain of information on this show. Well, we go from bereavement to grimness and spreading. I'm so converting toast. to Judaism when we're done with this show. <laughs> you don't have to be Jewish to do that, you know, you moron. <laughs> oh, fantastic. All right. Well, anyway, we got our roundtable going here. Obviously, I didn't. I didn't connect the dots that Kurt was thirty-one. He was. And your husband? What was your husband's name, Carissa? Um, his name was Rick. Rick, thirty-one. Yes. That's that's too kooky. I never put those together. Yeah. So, and and Julie, you're here. Hi. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. And Julie's thirty-one. 
Yes. Yeah, of course yeah. we are. <laughs> so let let's start with Carissa. I'm, I want to. I mean, first of all, I commend you. I've been. I think we've been on each other's radar for quite a while now. I'm really excited that you sent us your your resource guide. It's very important. Um, talk about Rick. Let's let's hear about the about that. Sure. Um, I first met Rick in March of 2006. Um, I guess we had sort of unofficially met one time a couple years before that at a mutual friend's wedding. Um, but we had the same group of friends. He was living in Chicago going to grad school, and I was living here in Pittsburgh. Um, when I met him, he was about six weeks out from a stem cell transplant. It was the first time he was allowed to leave his house. Um, so he loaded up his car in Chicago and drove to Pittsburgh to be near friends and family. Um, and I happened to meet him uh, the first day he was back in town. Um, he had had cancer since he was about 21 or 22, um, towards the end of college. So I knew when I met him that this was something that was a part of his life. Um, he had Hodgkin's lymphoma with a couple different secondary cancers and some other complications along the way. Um, so, you know, when I met him, I knew going in that this was something that could be part of our shared experience. And I think that's something that's a little different in our situation and that I was fully aware of, of this being possible for us. Um, we went on our first official date in July of 2006 and got married in July of 2007 on the one-year anniversary of our first date. Um, about 10 months after that, he was diagnosed with a recurrence of the Hodgkin's lymphoma, and 10 months after that, he passed away. Wow. So he had been, after after about roughly about 10 years, you said, of treatment right. that, since his diagnosis. Right. Yeah. Wow. So what was the, so you two had um, two plus, what was the time frame that you two had together again? Um, about 30 months, all total. About 30 I mean, months. Yeah, 32 months from the time we started dating until he passed away. Yeah. And so how much how much of that time was spent sort of in and out in treatment for, for him? Well, when we first met, like I said, he was living in Chicago um, post-stem cell transplant and right. doing a lot of follow-up um, there, as I was here, um, in September of that year, he was given the all clear um, that, you know, he was in remission or, you know, doing well enough that he didn't have to continue any treatment. Um, and then in, I guess, you know, May of 2008, you know, the recurrence happened. So the, the last 10 months of our marriage was spent pretty intensely in and out of treatment and doing a lot of interesting things to try to keep him well. Interesting things. Was there was there alternative treatments that you tried? Yeah, you know, he had exhausted so many options. Um, and at the time, you know, they had thrown the second stem cell transplant possibility on the table, but um, Rick didn't feel comfortable doing that again. I think he was afraid that if the cancer didn't kill him, going through that would. Um, and his doctor wasn't sure if he was healthy enough to do it. So we tried everything short of the stem cell transplant. Right. What did, the, what did some of those other treatments include, uh, sort of non-traditional things? You know, I think um, I probably can't answer that very well because yeah. Rick it's was a, sort of the expert at, <laughs> at right. his illness and the treatments, and I was just sort of along for the ride at that point. Um, right. You know, I trusted his decision-making and his oncologist very much and um, worried about making life as comfortable as possible more than the details of which medicines he was on or, 
you know, which oh, is, sure. you know, you know one way I just, coping, I think. I just keep hearing, and as I'm, this is Julie, and as I'm listening to both Jennifer speak and tell her story, and then uh, Trissa, you tell, tell yours about everything that you both have been through, that I know we're, talk, we're here to talk about bereavement, we're here to talk about loss, and it just occurs to me that here you are doing everything that you possibly could, and 10 months of intense treatments, and alternative things versus whatever the doctors were, were telling you to do along the way. And not only is there now the loss in your life, but there's all these little losses along the way. And, and I don't know if that was something you were feeling in, those, in that moment. I hear that a lot in my office. Is that from the point you hear this diagnosis, it's absolutely not anything that you expect to be dealing with in this young stage in your marriage. I mean, this is a, you said it yourself, Jennifer. You come out of four years of intense law school, and here you are. You're like getting ready to like That's buy right. your house and maybe start a family. And there's the interruption of that. Whether or not you're even registering that this could be end of life or losing your partner, you're still losing what was supposed to be on the timeline right now. Sure. I mean, there was definitely some of that, but, but not much, to be quite honest. I mean, mm-hmm. it never entered my mind or Kurt's mind that he wasn't going to be this disease. So I don't think that, that we were in a, in a grieving process at all, as so much as we were in a fight process. And mm-hmm. that defined it much more. And I was, you know, Kurt sort of was very insightful about a lot of these things and wanted me to talk about when I felt like we were losing our... Um, our youth or our fun or our independence. I mean, he gave that as much space as his cancer That's fight. So he would, I mean, he was extraordinary. You know, yeah, the, the way you both supported each other is, is pretty special, very special. I know I hear a lot of times that that is so hard for couples, and I don't know if that is something that there are people listening that are hearing that and feeling like, yeah, we're experiencing that feeling of loss that we were yeah. supposed to be trying to get pregnant right now, and we're not. That's right. And and this is so frustrating. Are we were supposed to be buying a house, but now we have we're bankrupt. We don't have any money right now. Right. So those things. I mean, we talk an awful lot about the cancer and adjusting. But gosh, there's these all these little losses along the way. And I find they've now piled up. I feel uh-huh. them now. Not not during the treatment. Not during the fight. But I now I feel the regret of not having children and and having that taken away from us. I think about those things now. But but during the fight, they they never entered our mind because he was so bold and lived so much. It just it didn't feel like we lost much except our Fridays when we were hanging out at Hopkins. So Carissa, tell us let's 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 move back to you. Tell us about um about starting Bricks. Um, so Bricks for Young Adults uh, is an organization I started a couple months after Rick passed away. Um, I think for the first few weeks, I just wasn't sure what I was going to do with myself. Um, you know, and you're sort of on autopilot getting through all of these things in the beginning. You just kind of sure. float through your life for a while. Um, and at some point, I realized that the things that we had learned along the way were just way too important. We had worked too hard um, to find information and resources and to find people who understood, um, at least in some way, what we were going through. And I felt like I had this big chunk of information that I had to do something with. Um, At the same time, I sort of realized that I had two options for how I was going to live my life, and that was either to hole up in my house and lay on the couch watching movies every night, or to get back out into the world and to stay involved um, and do something positive. And I knew that of those two things, making something and continuing to work hard was the thing that Rick would have wanted me to do, 
and that he would have expected me to do. Um, so I set about this project to put together this booklet. Um, I collected stories from 15 people in the community um, about their experience with cancer as young adults, and then it also contains a resource guide in the back, um, which includes information about websites like I2Y, um, books that people have found to be really useful, um, and resources for things like helping to pay for medication or medical bills or legal help. Carissa, what is your um, what is your career? Um, I actually work at a nonprofit women's healthcare organization. I'm like an office manager there, so I do that full time, um, and then I do the bricks work in my spare time, in addition to wrangling my 12-year-old son. So <laughs> that's pretty busy. <clears throat> Are you a Pittsburgh native? Um, I came here in 1994 to go to college, and I have not left. So. Well, they must be doing something right over there. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a good place, though. You know, I mentioned before on the show that there's this uh, environmental oncology movement out there because young adults get different cancers for different reasons than the 96% of the 94% of the population that get cancer over the age of 50. And I'm convinced it's entirely environmental and that influences our genetics. Um, the um, if there was a a sort of a big bang uh, in the launch of environmental oncology, it was actually at uh, UPMC, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the UPMC hospitals um, are, are very, I don't know, I don't want to say they're they're the best, but they're, they're definitely uh, a great place to be, I think, if you're going through something like this. So. And they have the very first environmental oncology division in the mm -hmm. entire country that is exploring the chemistry of what affects us in terms of developing cancers. So mm -hmm. it, it is most applicable to the young adult community. So mm -hmm. you're you're in good shape. That's a good good center you got there. Yeah. If I can just get them to give out my booklets, that would be great. Right. <laughs> we'll just send Jack there. They can't deny him. He's too pitiful. Uh-oh. Chris, you mentioned that you have a you have a son? I do. Yes. From a from this is from a previous a, relationship. Yes. From a previous Rick and relationship. I were unable to have children. Yeah. Right, right. So talk to us, and this is kind of a tough question um, uh, for you and for Jennifer as well. I mean, you guys are, you know, you're fighters. You're dealing with a partner, and, you know, Jennifer, you spoke very much to this. Like, um, you're, you're fighting. You're fighting to get through this. You know, you're optimistic. At a certain point, um, I imagine, you know, t towards the end there when something, you know, t when, it, when it turns and you've got to deal with end-of-life issues, how as young adults and as young married couples, do you adjust to that? Um, in our situation, um, personally for Rick and I, um, we always knew that it was possible but didn't necessarily prepare for it. I think we didn't want to admit on some level that it might be something we had to prepare ourselves for. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, from the time the doctor said there's really not much else I can do until Rick passed away was about 15 hours. Um, wow. I, yeah, it was, it was really not a whole lot of time to, to do much, um, and that was something that I felt I needed to be involved in and help other people be a little more aware of, and that's why I, I shared my story in the booklet as well and sort of said, you know, even if you think you're prepared, some of it you're just not prepared for, because the reality of it as possible just doesn't always sink in. You're so worried about making good decisions and working hard 
that you don't necessarily want to admit to yourself that this may happen to you. Yeah, yeah. I think that's totally right. I mean, for us, Kurt went from beating cancer to dying in two weeks. I mean, he had demonstrated tremendous progress, primary tumor gone, liver tumor shrinking, and all of a sudden he was hospitalized. The first time he was hospitalized during treatment, um, and two weeks later he died. It was, it, it, there wasn't even time to think about end of life because until I watched that last breath come out of him, I didn't believe it was the end of his life. Mm-hmm. And so we had had sort of an abstract discussion about do you want to be buried or cremated, and if you're cremated, where do you want your ashes spread? But it was posited as you know, we have to have this conversation sometime, may as well have it now. And it was still, even in those last days of his life, something that I expected to be executing when we were in our 60s. Is that right? Wow. Julie, do you find that that's generally, um, that that's kind of mentality, both emotionally and dealing with logistics, like funerals, that that's pretty common among the young adult community? Yes. I find that to be, uh, yeah, I I find that most young adults that sit with me are very focused on the fight, like like everybody has been saying, on, on treatment, on managing side effects, on figuring out how they're going to get to the next vacation or how they're going to get to the next visit home to the parents or, you know, what the next thing on the calendar is, everything is geared toward we're getting to that point. Even if in the worst, most dire situations, you're just continuing to live, continuing to move forward. And so that, that focus is about living. It's about moving forward. It's not at all about potentially dying. And Sorry, go ahead. And, and and I think that yeah, there there any contra, any conversations that are had around abstractly like you know funerals or burials or will are, are happen very. Um, uh, I hate to say the word flippant. I don't mean it like that, but maybe flippantly or abstractly or vaguely like let's just talk about this just in case or you know because one should, but mm-hmm. not really dealing with it because it's something that's in our reality. Or you almost there, preface it like a joke. Mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. kind of, like, make light of it. Like, well, do you want me to throw your ashes in the river? Or do you want me to <laughs> put them under your favorite tree? Or You know, you kind of make silly little jokes, yeah. I think. And that's just a way to sort of cope with that because you don't want to talk about the real issues, like which funeral home should I call. And then I, and then I find, and I don't know if this is a – when I work with couples together, it is so heavy and it is so intense to have any of the emotional conversations about how much you love each other, how much you're going to miss that person, how much you're going to think about them and how you want them to live their life and what you wish and what you dream for them. Those conversations are so heavy and so intense that they're very difficult to have. And so I find that people kind of, a little bit, they they kind of skirt it until you're at 15 hours or you're at 10 hours. And then when I see people in bereavement, they ha- they regret or they feel they feel they feel a sense of regret that they didn't have those conversations and i guess my message always or as we talk about that in in bereavement work is you can one we all and certainly as a couple that that cares very much about one another communicate in so many many different ways other than verbal so the way that you hold somebody's hand, the way that you sit by their bed, the way that you smile with them, the way that you touch, all of these things are communicating everything that you felt. And so I think that, again, I, I, I'm mindful of the people that are listening to us as well, that if you're sitting there, that 
if there's a, those feelings of regret or I didn't get to say these things, I think that those messages are communicated sometimes different than just words. I think that's a really good point. Is there any advice that you would give Julie to um, to young couples in terms of dealing with the logistical stuff like wills? I mean, do you come up come up do you, do you meet with folks who you know just maybe should have looked after or taken care of that stuff a little bit better and then find themselves in the, in a in a bit more of a difficult spot after a spouse has has died? Um, I think that sometimes the the more difficult legal or, um, or financial things are sometimes when things get tangled up with parents, too. So there's there's figuring this all out legally with health proxies and, and you know, um, who's going to be a, a guardian or uh, the power of attorney and all of those types of things. But also I think these conversations need to be had as a group with parents because you're at an age, and this is something that's different with young adults, where parents are still very often very much in the mix. Yeah. And so how how do you have these conversations as the wife or as the husband, but you've got parents who feel very connected there too. This is their young child, and yeah. they feel very connected. That's a good point, I think, and we'll do an upcoming show on parents because as you, uh, you know, so rightly point out there, another tricky point of being a young adult is that you are, the, the parents are still very much in the picture and, you know, you're an adult, but you're still their child, and that's just something that doesn't enter the mix to somebody who's, you know, 50-plus going through cancer. I can't really imagine my 90-year-old father bothering me at 66, heaven forbid my wife passed away, and at 64. That's definitely a different socioeconomic, anthropological... Right. ...ridiculous compared to... Now. Now, yes. Yeah. Clearly, parents are very often, <clears throat> not all the times, but but many times involved. And then you know the other thing that we're talking we're talking about spouses and partners. There's a difference too that if you're just a long-term boyfriend or girlfriend, yeah, because hey, you're very connected, you're very much you're sharing lives, sure. and there's even there's no legal tie there. So all of these conversations, while they're difficult to have, sometimes are in fact important. Julian, let me ask you a question. Uh, I mean, you've obviously been doing this for a very long time. There are still tens of thousands of young adults and teenagers that pass away every year. I would be remiss to think that a substantial amount of them are in relationships at some point. Does the infrastructure really exist to provide these people with what it is that they need? Like, are there enough U's out there that, or are there enough cancer centers out there that are able to provide grief counseling or long-term follow-up or just some sort of psychosocial support in any way to this community? Well, I might not be the best person actually to answer that. I don't know if, um, Jennifer or Teresa, if you want to chime in, there, there sound like there were people that were there for you in these moments. Um, I believe that there are those people out there. Are they easy to connect with? Are they easy always to find? That might be trickier. Also, it, it speaks to just the general topic of finding a supportive other that you click with. 
And sometimes that's a friend, sometimes that's a family member. If it's a professional, sometimes the first person that you go to for bereavement counseling doesn't click, just doesn't work. And that that doesn't mean that therapy is a bust and that it's no good. It just means you did not click with that bereavement therapist. And, they, you know, you got to shop around a little bit. you got to kind of know, hey, what am I looking for? Do I want to just find somebody that's going to sit back and they're going to listen to me and they're going to give me the space to be able to tell stories and, and share about my, my spouse? Or do I want somebody that's actually going to sit there and process and problem solve about how I am going to get from today until next Tuesday? Because if that's a much more active person, so you got to kind of know, what do I need in terms of support and, and, and as you go to reach out? And I think knowing what you need is is the biggest challenge. I mean, I, I if some and people do people ask you every day, what can I do? How can I help? I, I have no idea. Right, right, right. I mean, <laughs> from the the need changes hour to hour and day to day. And so identifying that basket of resources, I think, much like a, a cancer battle, can often be a very personal and individual path. It's very personal. And, you know, I've, I'm, I've been just jotting and writing tons as, as everybody's been talking. And I think another major theme that I'm hearing um, from everybody is there's a loss of identity. And this is a time in your development. This is a young adulthood, what that task is, if everybody remembers Eric Erickson from your psychology classes. <laughs> <laughs> but the task of young adulthood is is understanding who the people in your life are. So who are you going to marry? Who are your good best friends? Who are your professional relationships? Who are you becoming as a professional? You know, all who are your children going to be? You're going to have them. You know, this is what young adulthood is. And this was all going to be happening with this partner, this teammate. And now that person is not here. And so you've got to re redefine your identity. And it leaves you wandering around monuments, not knowing. <laughs> and it leaves Trissa kind of like floating in space, like she said. It leaves you floating a bit. And that's and there's it's not that you're positive it's not that you're not doing anything in that moment. Actually you're very active. Your mind is just kind of spinning and that spinning is exactly where you need to be because you're well, figuring it out. I think it's interesting too, um, kind of coming back to the idea of knowing what you need. Um, part of what's maybe a little difficult for us as young adults is that in the beginning your friends don't know how to respond to your loss either. Yeah. And they all give these offers of support. And for the first couple of weeks you have people, you know, bringing you food and taking your dogs for a walk and yeah. calling you up on the phone. And then after three weeks it, it drops off a little bit. And then a month later it drops off a little more. And when you're three, six, nine, or 16 months out like myself, you're finally figuring out what you need. And you want to say to people, I'm still dealing with this, this still happened to me, and I still need you. And it's hard to say, you know, after all this time passes by, to call people up and say, hey, remember when you said if I needed anything? Well, I know you're back to your life and your job and your band and your whatever, but I need you now. You know, and to remember that you can still do that, that you can still kind of call on people, and hopefully they'll still rise to the occasion because you're still coping with it. It's so you were comfortable. So you were comfortable to do that, you know, 16 months later, obviously, and you, you've gotten that response. You just pick up the phone and do it, and, and the people have been there 16 months later. So your message is <laughs> do it if you need it It's 16 months out, right? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think you have to be willing to acknowledge when you still need help and not feel like all this time has passed and you don't deserve to ask for that. Yeah. You know, because I think people even though they're busy and they're living their lives, there's a sincerity there that you can't really take for granted. They they do mean well 
and maybe they just need to be reminded that you still need them. Sure, or if they don't hear from you, think, oh, she must be doing fine now. Right, <laughs> exactly. I think yeah. in, until this happened, I really never understood what the word shock meant and how protective it can be. And it really is months until you start to feel the reality mm-hmm. of this experience. And I think um, what's being said is, is totally right. I'm now hitting that point where the permanence of, mm-hmm. my, of Kurt's loss is really sinking in, and the loneliness that comes with that is crippling. But by doing exactly what you're saying, by reaching out to people, you start to chip away at that loneliness. When you get people who respond, when you say, I need you now, then you, you build that web of people around you that reminds you that you're not totally alone. There's a, there's a part of you that will never be filled because that person is gone, but you're not totally alone. And learning to ask for help is, is sort of therapeutic in that unique sense. I'm so glad that this is coming up right now because I would say the, the time when people call my office, our call seeking bereavement support, is not when it happens. Mm-hmm. It is three to six months out because in the beginning they're, they're surrounded by, by support, and that's one thing, but it's such shock. And I think it's not until three months out or even later that the permanency of this hits and people start w- feeling, feeling maybe worse, right. and they start mm-hmm. feeling that that's abnormal. I'm not coping well. I'm not coping with this the way that I should be. And actually, you're right on target. This is absolutely normal, and that it gets deeper at about this point. And you've got, that's when I find people reach out, is about three to six months. And so, and so it, you know, that, that feeling of this is wrong, this is abnormal, actually isn't the case. It's normal that you begin to feel maybe a little worse at that point. A lot worse, actually. Yeah. You know, and, and right after it happens, people try to boost you up, and they say, time will make it easier, time will make uh, it better. Time <laughs> makes it a whole lot harder is what time <laughs> makes it. It gets much worse. I hate worse. that saying. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. It doesn't get easier with time necessarily. Not one bit. No. And, you know, and that, that said, and I, I want to honor that, that, that what you both have said there, and I know we're getting close on time too, people do ask me, how, what is the time on this, and when am I going to feel differently? And I don't think there's any rules on time. I think that's a, that's a you know, that's the, the party line. But I... I also, because I have done this and because I have watched people in my office, I do believe that the grief changes. Mm-hmm. It doesn't ever go away. I think people will always grieve, and you will always mourn that person in your life. But the grief, I watch it change. I watch it change. So there, there, it does change. And by that, I, I don't know. that The waves come further apart. The lows aren't as low. It's not as heavy. It does change, and so I think there is some hope in there, but it, there's no timeline. I'm told it gets familiar, that it mm. never gets easy, but it gets familiar. And you understand how to, how to comfort yourself. So let's talk about, since we are the organization that does flip the bird on wristbands, let's talk about anger and when this, you know, this isn't fair, this wasn't fair, that this happened to my spouse, that we were young when that emotion comes up and how you deal with that. Anybody it's called bricks because they throw bricks, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. Not now we know. That's no, it. No, no. Uh, I actually ha- I think I had a real advantage in this area um, in that when I met Rick, he had already gone through that process. Right. And he wasn't mad anymore. He just saw this as a thing that he had to do. And he viewed cancer as something that just happened in his life and he was going to do his best with it and keep living his life and I I guess I sort of felt that if 
he couldn't be angry, I really couldn't be angry either. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know that anger was ever an emotion that I felt because to me it seems kind of unproductive. Um, so I, I think I was frustrated and disappointed and sad, but I don't know that I ever just felt rage at the disease because it happens to so many people and so many people are coping so well and living their lives and you know anger just wasn't an option for me right jennifer what about you oh i i'm real familiar with anger i, I, I get that <laughs> back to the kitten and yeah back exactly right, it's that kind right. of, you have to do violence to beautiful things because it's so bad i'm just trying to find a cat sound clip here somewhere <laughs> i can't get it i find you know i i am privileged to live and work in the nation's capital and every morning i drive down independence avenue one of the sort of great drives in in america and by the time i get from my house on capitol hill to my job in Georgetown, I am in such a rage at every single tourist who seems to think it's okay to just walk around and pretend that life is great when they don't realize that this wonderful man is gone. And every single morning I am in a lather by the time I get to work because I can't make the world stop and focus on finding a way to get him back. It just it is irrational, it is completely unproductive, but by the by the time I get to work every morning I'm just mad at the world because they don't seem to realize What's been lost? And and so how do how, what's what's other than punching kittens? What's the best <laughs> way for you to deal with that? For, for me, it's just sort of a, a I, I got to talk it out. I go grab a friend. We go get coffee. I give her this morning's rage status. You know, and we you know I just I, I vocalize it and verbalize it and recognize it as as just part of the process. Yeah. We've got to wrap soon. Matt, I was going to, we, just, we have a question from Erin Eloise Tolberg in the chat room, which I see Chris is trying to answer there. But just to, and maybe Julie wants to, um, anybody chime in, but Julie certainly, um, what if people don't reach out and you feel that they should be reaching out to you or, um, or, or you know someone needs help but they're not getting it? Okay, what if people, this is the question right there. Um, yeah. So, so as a, I'm assuming as a friend or as somebody that you have somebody that you want them to be reaching out and getting support and you want to help to facilitate that. I'm, I'm wondering if that's kind of what this is. Um, I, I think, first of all, the reaching out for support has to come from the person who's grieving. You can't, you can't make somebody go to counseling if they're not ready for it. They, we often get calls, actually, at Cancer Care, my mother needs to talk to somebody, will you call her? No, your mother needs to call us. So, you know, the person that needs the support has to reach out for it. However, I think that a wonderful thing that friends or family can do or they can research and find these supportive services because again back to kind of Jennifer's point we don't know what you need they they might not know what's out there what's available to them how easy it is to call what the number is that they would say would call and if you can kind of line that stuff up and maybe maybe give it to them or put it on a shelf where they can get to it at another time Maybe that's a that's a way of providing support or being able to give something to them that they can reach to when they feel ready for it. Right, uh, Carissa. What does BRICS stand for? Um, it's just an acronym for Building Resources in Cancer Knowledge and Services. So the fact that the word RIC isn't in there. It's totally accidental, really. I didn't do wow. that on purpose. I promise. But it's but, psychologically in there. It yeah. is. I noticed it. 
a couple months after we started printing materials and actually doing things, and I just kind of looked at it and had this really interesting moment, you know, where I saw his name in the name of the organization for the first time, and it was strange. That's like a gestalt moment right that's, there. That's when you amazing. Just, yeah, that's, that's great cool, stuff. That must have been a cool moment. I mean, yeah, nice. So um, we want to get Pittsburgh active. What can we do to help you um, rally the troops and do some good bar nights and whatnot? Yeah, well, this is a good start. Um, yeah, just let me know. But I'm ready. I'm ready to get out there and, you know, get some people involved. We've rallied up a, a nice group of people um, locally who've been supporting the BRICS events and uh, who would definitely love to, to do a happy hour or some kind of event here, for sure. You have a bar with a bull? Hmm, I don't think so. All right, got to get a bull riding competition <laughs> out there by you. I'll look into that. Good stuff, good stuff. Um, anything else going on? I mean, obviously, this is an incredibly uh, important show to talk about. It's, it's, you know, it's hard to have some levity, but it's important. I think we, we're, we are able to find the, the ludicrousness, if that's a word, in all of this and how ridiculous it is that we can be comfortable poking a stick at it while taking it incredibly seriously. I mean, losing somebody to cancer is never okay. But when you are a younger a, a human being, <laughs> it definitely is a much more different, much more different, my grammar, it's late, uh, horribly different experience. Uh, not to take, take anything away from when you're older and you pass away from cancer, but I really have to commend you guys for, and, and you, you know, here you are, you Here's your peer support right there. Carissa, this is Jen. Jen, this is Carissa. No, like, like, it shouldn't have to take a radio show to bring you two together. There should be some system in place that, that would enable you to find each other without the happenstance of Jack Buffard. So the, and the takeaway is that you can go to Bricks or you can uh, get you can go to um, Cancer Cares and you can get uh, counseling and uh or you, if you're if you're uh, from Julie, or if you're if you're wandering around D.C. by the Washington Monument, just know that you should think that there's people. If you're a tourist, damn it, just know, damn it, that, that there are people like out there like Kurt who existed, and uh, so Jennifer doesn't have to think about punching kittens. But we we so need to have a punching kitten competition right now. Oh, no, <laughs> Therapeutic. No. It is good therapy. As no, a no. Worker, and by I'm standing up. No, for and the by kittens. kittens I mean Jack. <laughs> <laughs> they can hit on me, but they can't hit me. Okay. Uh, that was all right. That just gets a fail right now. <laughs> oh man. Oh, here we go. It's not a tumor. Fantastic. That's the closest I can do right now. You know, uh, one maybe one last closing yes. statement. I I actually had a young thirty-year-old woman in my office just last week who lost her. She's coming up on the one-year anniversary, and she's she's really doing very well. Right. And I think one of the things that we spent a lot of our time talking about was the hump, or the place that you get to about feeling okay with feeling happy. 
And it's mm-hmm. actually a hump, I think, that people experience of, like, when they just want to laugh and have a great time and begin to enjoy their life again. And there's this tinge, this little shimmer shadow of, I should be grieving, I should be sad, I shouldn't be feeling this way. And I think that that's, a very, again, a very normal part of grieving is when you can begin to feel okay and you can begin to Like, when is it okay to life. laugh again? Yeah. yeah, when you can live your young life. And it's all part of the process of what's called in social worky world integrating the loss and that this relationship is going to be relationship for the rest of your life, but that relationship changes and how you find ways to integrate it. It's a great point. The work you're doing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great point. Well, on that note, we do have to wrap the show, but I, I again, I, I, I love and I hate to have to do a show on bereavement because it's just so important. So few people are talking about it. There are so few resources out there within the tiny community that already is the young adult universe. So uh, special thanks to our guests. Um, and uh, Lisa, Jack, you guys all right? We're great. Thank you so much, all three of our guests. It was, it was a really okay. important, great show. Thanks for sharing your stories. All right. Well, uh, I guess now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, Internet. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so... To all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, folks. That is tonight's show. I hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at stupid cancer. I'd like to thank our guests, Carissa Hamilton Grabanus. Gribbonus, I'm so bad at everything. Julie Larson and the fabulous Jennifer Owen. Tough show. Tough show. Next week's show is on beauty and fitness. The most awkward segue in history. In our survivor spotlight, Emily Hobson, young adult survivor viewing sarcoma. She is a Zach Efron's cousin. Barry Hendrickson, founder of Bits and Pieces, the author of Looking Like You, and Michelle Robbins from Yoga Bear. If you've missed any of our past shows, check out the archives and the podcast at stupidcancershow.com. Remember, if it's not stupid, it's not cancer. We'll see you all back here next week, my friends, live from the chemo deck. Jack Buffard, Lisa Bernhardt, Amanda Freeman, Captain Stubing, and I wish you all a great week. Who do we say goodbye to? Go to bed, Aaron Holberg. Fucker out. out. I'm just done. Go get some sleep.